0: SECTION 47 OF LIBRARY OF THE WORLD'S BEST LITERATURE, ANCIENT AND MODERN, VOLUME 1 THIS IS A LIBRIVOX RECORDING. ALL LIBRIVOX RECORDINGS ARE IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. FOR MORE INFORMATION, OR TO VOLUNTEER, PLEASE VISIT LIBRIVOX.ORG RECORDING BY BILL SUSNA LIBRARY OF THE WORLD'S BEST LITERATURE, ANCIENT AND MODERN, VOLUME 1 Section Forty Seven, Selected Works by Carl Eunice LUVA Amkvist, seventeen ninety-three to eighteen sixty-six. Amkvist, one of the most versatile writers of Sweden, was a man of strange contrasts, a genius as uncertain as a will of the wisp. His contemporary, the famous poet and critic ATTERBAUM, writes. WHAT DID THE GREAT POETS OF PAST TIMES POSSESS WHICH UPHELD THEM EVEN UNDER THE BITTEREST WORLDLY CIRCUMSTANCES? TWO THINGS. ONE, A STRONG AND CONSCIENTIOUS WILL. THE OTHER, A SINGLE, NOT DOUBLE, MUCH LESS MANIFOLD, DETERMINATION FOR THEIR WORK, ONENESS. THEY WERE NOT SELF-SEEKERS. THEY SOUGHT, THEY WORSHIPPED SOMETHING BETTER THAN THEMSELVES. The aim which stood dimly before their inmost souls was not the enjoyment of flattered vanity; it was a high, heroic symbol of love, of honor, and love of country, of heavenly wisdom. For this they thought it worth while to fight; for this they even thought it worth while to suffer, without finding the suffering in itself strange, or calling earth to witness thereof. The writer of Thunrossen's book, The Book of the Rose, is one of these few. He does therefore already reign over a number of youthful hearts, and out of them will rise his time of honor, a time when many of the celebrities of the present moment will have faded away. Amnqvist was born in Stockholm in 1793. When still a very young man, he obtained a good official position but gave it up in 1823 to lead a colony of friends into the forests of farmland where they intended to return to a primitive life close to the heart of nature he called this colony a quote, "man's home association" end quote, and ordained that in the primeval forest the members should live in turf-covered huts where homespun eat porridge with a wooden spoon and enact the ancient freeholder. The experiment was not successful. He tired of the manual work, and returning to Stockholm, became master of the new elementary school, and began to write textbooks and educational works. His publication of a number of epics, dramas, lyrics, and romances made him suddenly famous. Viewed as a whole, this collection is generally called the Book of the Rose, but at times in Erende Hind, A Stray Deer. Of this, the two dramas Signora Luna and Ramido Marinesco contain some of the pearls of Swedish literature. Uneven in the plan and execution, they are yet masterly in dialogue, and their dramatic and tragic force is great. Amkvist's um, imagination showed itself as individual as it is fantastic coming from a man hitherto known as the writer of textbooks and the advocate of popular social ideas the volumes aroused extraordinary interest the author revealed himself as akin to novalis and victor hugo with a power of language like that of aderbam and a richness of color resembling ten years Atterbaum himself wrote of Tom Rosenbach that it was a work whose faults were exceedingly easy to overlook, and whose beauties exceedingly difficult to match. After this appeared in rapid succession, and written with equal ease, lyrical, dramatic, educational, poetical, aesthetical, philosophical, moral, and religious treatises, as well as lectures and studies in history and law. For Omqvist now gave all his time to literary labors. His novel showed socialistic sympathies, and he put forth newspaper articles and pamphlets on socialism which aroused considerable opposition. Moreover, he delighted in contradictions. One day he wrote as an avowed Christian, extolling virtue, piety, and Christian knowledge. The next, he abrogated religion as entirely unnecessary, and his own explanation of this variability was merely, I paint, so it pleases me to paint so, and life is not otherwise. In 1851 was heard the startling rumor that he was accused of forgery and charged with murder. He fled from Sweden and disappeared from the knowledge of men. Going to America, he earned under a fictitious name a scanty living, and became, it is said, the private secretary of Abraham Lincoln. In eighteen sixty six he found himself again under the ban of the law, his papers were destroyed, and he escaped with difficulty to Bremen, where he died. One of his latest works was his excellent modern novel, "Det gore an," in English, "It's all right," a forerunner of the problem novel of the day. It is an attack upon conventional marriage and pictures the helplessness of a woman in the hands of a depraved man. Its extreme views called out violent criticism. He was a romanticist through and through, with a strong leaning toward the French school. Among the best of his tales are Arminta May, Shalnora Quarn, or Skalnor's Mill, Grimsteman's Niebuge, or Grimstaham's Settlement. His idyll the chapel, is wonderfully true to nature, and his novel Palazet, the palace, is rich in humor and true poesy. His literary fame will probably rest on his romances, which are the best of their kind in Swedish literature. Characteristics of Cattle Anyone with a taste for physiognomy should carefully observe the features of the ox and the cow. Their demeanor and the expression of their eyes they are figures which bear an extraordinary stamp of respectability they look neither joyful nor melancholy they are seldom evilly disposed but never sportive they are full of gravity and always seem to be going about their business they are not merely of great economic service but their whole persons carry the look of it They are the very models of earthly carefulness. Nothing is ever to be seen more dignified, more official-looking, than the whole behavior of the ox, his way of carrying his head, and looking around him. If anybody thinks I mean these words for a sarcasm, he is mistaken. No slur on official life, or on what the world calls a man's vocation, is intended I hold them all in as much respect as could be asked. And though I have an eye for contours, no feeling of ridicule is connected in my mind with any of these. On the contrary, I regard the ox and the cow with the warmest feelings of esteem. I admire in them a naive and striking picture of one who minds his own business, who submits to the claims of duty not using the word in its highest sense, who in the world's estimate is dignified, steady, conventional, and middle-aged, that is to say, neither youthful nor stricken in years. Look at that ox which stands before you, chewing his cud and gazing around him with such unspeakable thoughtfulness, but which will you find, when you look more closely into his eyes, is thinking about nothing at all." Look at that discreet, excellent Dutch cow, which, gifted with an inexhaustible udder, stands quietly, and allows herself to be milked as a matter of course, while she gazes into space with a most sensible expression. Whatever she does, she does with the same imperturbable calmness, and as when a person leaves an important trust to his own time and to posterity. If the worth of this creature is thus great on the one side, yet on the other it must be confessed that she possesses not a single trait of grace, not a particle of vivacity, and none of that quick characteristic retreating from an object which indicates an internal buoyancy, an elastic temperament, such as we see in a bird or fish. There is something very agreeable in the varied lowing of cattle when heard in the distant country and when replied to by a large herd, especially toward evening and amid echoes. On the other hand, nothing is more unpleasant than to hear all at once, and just beside one the bellowing of a bull, who thus authoritatively announces himself as if nobody else had any right to utter a syllable in his presence. A NEW Undine FROM THE BOOK OF THE ROSE Miss Rudenskold and her companion sat in one of the pews in the cheerful and beautiful church at Normalm, which is all that is left of the once famous cloister of St. Clara, and still bears the saint's name. The sermon was finished, and the strong, full tones of the organ, called out by the skilful hands of an excellent organist, hovered like the voices of unseen angel choirs in the high vaults of the church, floated down to the listeners, and and sank deep into their hearts. azuras did not speak a single word, neither did she sing, for she did not know a whole hymn through, nor did Miss Rudenskold sing, because it was not her custom to sing in church. During the organ solo, however, Miss Rudenskold ventured to make some remarks about Dr. Asplund's sermon, which was so beautiful, and about the notices afterward, which were so tiresome. But when her neighbor did not answer, but sat looking ahead with large, almost motionless eyes, as people stare without looking at anything in particular, she changed her subject. At one of the organ tones which finished a cadence, Azura started and blinked quickly with her eyelids, and a light sigh showed that she came back to herself and her friend from her vague contemplative state of mind—something indescribable, very sad, shone in her eyes and made them almost black and with a childlike look at miss rudenskold she asked tell me what that large painting over there represents the altarpiece don't you know the altarpiece in clara is one of the most beautiful we possess what is going on there asked azuras miss rudenskold gave her a side glance she did not know that her neighbor in the pew was a girl without baptism without christianity without the slightest knowledge of holy religion a heathen and knew less than a heathen for such a one has his teachings although they are not christian miss rudenskold thought the girl's question came of a momentary forgetfulness and answered to remind her well you see it is one of the usual subjects but unusually well painted. That is all. High up among the other figures in the painting, you will see the half-reclining figure of one that is dead. See what an expression the painter has put into the face. That is the Saviour, the Saviour. Yes, God's son, you know, or God Himself, and he is dead. Repeated Azurus to herself with wondering eyes. Yes i believe that it must be so it is godlike to die miss rudenskold looked at her neighbor with wide opened eyes you must not misunderstand this subject she said it is human to live and want to live you can see that too in the altarpiece for all the persons who are human beings like ourselves are alive let us go out i feel oppressed by fear no I will tarry here until my fear passes away. Go, dearest, I will send you word. Miss Rudenskold took leave of her, went out of the church and over the churchyard to the eastern gate, which faces Odin's Lane. The girl, meanwhile, stayed inside, came to a corner in the organ stairs, saw people go out little by little, remained unobserved, and finally heard the sexton and the churchkeeper go away. When the last door was closed, Azura stepped out of her hiding place. Shut out from the entire world, severed from all human beings, she found herself the only occupant of the large, light building into which the sun lavishly poured his gold. Although she was entirely ignorant of our holy church customs and the meaning of the things she saw around her, she had nevertheless, sometimes in the past, when her mother was in better health been present at the church service as a pastime and so remembered one thing and another the persons with whom she lived in the halls and corridors of the opera hardly ever went to god's house and generally speaking church-going was not practiced much during this time no wonder then that a child who was not a member of any religious body and who had never received an enlightening word from any minister should neglect what the initiated themselves did not attend to assiduously. She walked up the aisle, and never had the sad, strange feeling of utter loneliness taken hold of her as it did now. It was coupled with the apprehension of a great, overhanging danger. Her heart beat wildly. She longed unspeakably. But for what? For her wild free forest out there, where she ran around quick as a deer? Or for what? She walked up toward the choir and approached the altar railing. Here at least. I remember that once, but that was long ago, and it stands like a shadow before my memory. I saw many people kneel here. It must have been of some use to them. Suppose I did likewise. Nevertheless, she thought it would be improper for her to kneel down on the decorated cushions around the chancel she folded her hands and knelt outside of the choir on the bare stone floor but what more was she to do or say now of what use was it all where was she to turn she knew nothing she looked down into her own thoughts as into an immense silent dwelling feelings of sorrow and a sense of transiency moved in slow swells like shining breaking waves through her consciousness Oh, something to lean on, a help. Where, where, where? She looked quietly about her. She saw nobody. She was sure to meet the most awful danger when the door was opened, if help did not come first. She turned her eyes back toward the organ, and in her thoughts she besought grace of the straight, long-shining pipes. But all their mouths were silent now. She looked up to the pulpit. Nobody was standing there. In the pews, nobody. She had sent everybody away from here and from herself. She turned her head again toward the choir. She remembered that when she had seen so many gathered here, two ministers' investments had moved about inside of the railing, and had offered the kneeling worshippers something, no doubt to help them. But now, there was nobody inside there to be sure she was kneeling here with folded hands and praying eyes but there was nobody 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 who offered her the least little thing she wept she looked out of the great church windows to the clear noonday sky her eyes beheld the delicate azure light which spread itself over everything far far away but on nothing could her eyes rest There were no stars to be seen now, and the sun itself was hidden by the window post, although its mild golden light flooded the world. She looked away again, and her eyes sank to the ground. Her knees were resting on a tombstone, and she saw many of the same kind about her. She read the names engraven on the stones. They were all Swedish, correct, and well known. Oh, she said to herself with a sigh i have not a name like others my names have been many borrowed and oh often changed i did not get one to be my very own if only i had one like other people nobody has written me down in a book as i have heard it said others are written down nobody asks about me i have nothing to do with anybody poor azuras she whispered low to herself She wept much. There was no one else who said, Poor Azurus Tintomara. But it was as if an inner, higher, invisible being felt sorry for the outer, bodily, visible being, both one and the same person in her. She wept bitterly over herself. God is dead, she thought, and looked up at the large altarpiece again. But I am a human being, i must live and she wept more heartily more bitterly the afternoon passed and the hour for vespers struck the bells in the tower began to lift their solemn voices and keys rattled in the lock then the heathen girl sprang up and much like a thin vanishing mist disappeared from the altar she hid in her corner again it seemed to her that she had been forward and had taken liberties in the choir of the church, to which she had no right, and that in the congregation coming in now, she saw persons who had a right to everything. Nevertheless, when the harmonious tones of the organ began to mix with the fragrant summer air in the church, Azura stood radiant, and she felt quickly how the weight lifted from her breast. Was it because of the tears she had shed? or did an unknown helper at this moment scatter the fear in her heart she felt no more that it would be dangerous to leave the church she stole away before vespers were over came out into the churchyard and turned off to the northern gate god's war his mighty weapon drawing god smites the world he loves thus worthy of him growing she his reflection proves. God's warlike lightning striking, The heart's deep core lays bare, Which fair grows to his liking, Who is supremely fair. Escapes no weakness, shame, No hid ignoble feeling, But when his thunder pealing enkindles life's deep flame, And water clear upwelleth, flowing unto its goal, God's grand cross standing telleth his truth unto the soul sing god's war earth that shakes sing sing the peace he makes end of section 47 recording by bill sisna www.billsisna.com